The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. My name's Jason, and I'm not one of the pastors here, but I am a, I am a pastor. Um, I work with our denominations campus ministry called Reform University Fellowship, which Frank just prayed for. We're on about 170 campuses across the United States and around the globe. My job is to oversee the campus ministries staff in Virginia and the eastern part of North Carolina. So if you have friends, grandkids, neighbors who are headed to a school in the region, I would love to help connect them with a campus Christian fellowship. If I can be of that help, I would love to do that. So... Today we are going to continue looking at the book of Revelation. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 9 through 21. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It's easy to find for that. We're going to look at the beginning of it. And the sermon series this summer is going through the letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And uh, Tobias and Andrew will largely be leading us through those letters. I get the privilege of leading us into the one section of a vision at the beginning of the book of Revelation this morning. I was excited when Tobias offered me the opportunity to do this. If you fall into the rest of the book, it's kind of like, if you read the rest of the book, it's kind of like falling into Dr. Strange's multiverse of madness, right? This, it's, I know I should do a Tolkien or a C.S. Lewis, but I, you know, Marvel. Um, that's why most people don't read the book of Revelation. Today's vision is more like a Marc Chagall painting, if you're an art fan. Y'all can Google that later if you're not familiar with Chagall. It, it is a vision. It's a little bit different than what you might be used to in the Bible, but I think you can hang with it. Um, so it, it's a little bit more manageable this morning in chapter 1. So the book of Revelation, most likely written by John the Apostle, John the friend of Jesus who wrote the gospel, the fourth gospel that you have in the New Testament. So he wasn't just like a, uh, a distant witness to Jesus. He was an intimate friend of Jesus. He walked side by side with Jesus in the flesh. Um, he touched Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He was with Jesus both before the crucifixion and after he was raised from the dead. And so if you were going to pick some, a person who was closest to the in-the-flesh Jesus, it would be John the Apostle, John who wrote the gospel. Um, and that's the man who experienced this vision, this vision that he wrote down after he saw it so we could hear it and see Jesus with him. Um, John, who gave us the historic recounting of Jesus' words and deeds on earth, also gives us this amazing vision of the resurrected Jesus and how he loves and cares for his people. And, and the reason I want us to take a minute to appreciate that before we read chapter 1 is, it's this, Jesus is coming to his friend. Jesus is coming to his friend to give him comfort, not to give him confusion. He's handing him something that's useful that he needs, and he's doing this for somebody he cares deeply about as a friend. And Jesus is your friend too, and Jesus cares for you too, and he gives us this vision 
not to confuse us, but to comfort us, because walking by faith is hard. And if you believe Jesus is loving and merciful, then you have some comfort to be seen in this passage this morning. Jesus is coming to us as a friend to give us spiritual strength so that we can see the world more like He sees it instead of getting stuck in the circumstances that make it so hard to walk by faith. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll read this together, and hopefully our eyes will start to be opened. So let's pray. Father, death rages, and the world is broken. The accuser, your enemy, accuses. And so we ask that you would come now by your word with the power of the Holy Spirit to speak light and life and hope to our hearts that we might look up and remember your victory over sin and over death and over everything that would separate us from your love. Draw us near to you by your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 21. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, seven literal churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that, are, those that are to take place after this. And note here, Jesus explains what John just saw to him. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so here's where we're going this morning. First, we're going to take a minute to, to appreciate where John stood and where we stand with him. And then we're going to look at what John saw and hear what, what John saw. And here's, here's the main point. Let me say at the beginning, 
before I lose you, you are not alone in Christ, and your life is not without purpose. I don't think we can hear that enough. You are not alone in Christ, and your life is not without purpose, because Jesus conquered all. You are not alone. Your life is not without purpose. And it says this in other places in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 22, this is what Paul wrote. In Christ, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. This morning, you were being built by the Holy Spirit into a dwelling place for the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are not alone. You are a dwelling place of God. Colossians 1, chapter 24 And Paul wrote this, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Your life of faith is filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his church. Would you have written that? Kind of makes theological light bulbs go off, doesn't it? Jesus' work was lacking. That's Paul wrote, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. We could unpack that more, but needless to say, it means this, our life has purpose. Your life of faith in this world, despite all appearances otherwise, has purpose. Filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. You are not alone. Your life is not without purpose. John needed that vision. He needed to see life differently than what he was feeling it. Is that true of you this morning? Do you need to see your life and your community of faith differently where you stand? John was on Patmos. Anybody ever been there? A small, insignificant Some might say irrelevant island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. I don't know if people who live there now would say that. Um, John's in the waning days of his working life. It doesn't sound like it's a voluntary retirement. He's there on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It kind of sounds like exile. Okay, just put yourself in John's shoes for a moment. This must have been hard, don't you think? Ending your life here on an irrelevant Turkish island after having lived as one of Jesus' most trusted companions in the middle of his career, right? Like, he preached sermons with Jesus. He cast out demons with Jesus. He healed people with Jesus. He was part of the foundation of the church in its first days, he wrote the Gospel of John. Like, if you could think of a glorious pastoral career, John is probably, like, example number one. Literally leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, at that dinner table. And here he is, an older man on Patmos, forgotten. Now, I've listened Um, to some of my older friends talk about how age makes you feel increasingly irrelevant and small, Um, and I'm I'm just turning 50, and I'm starting to feel a little bit of those echoes of the smallness and sideline nature of my life. I mean, I'm not setting fashion trends anymore like I used to in my 20s. 
How much more so for John? I mean, don't you think he looked back on the glory days? And now he's on Patmos. Don't you think he wondered, am I forgotten? What in the world is God doing with me? Here. I mean, imagine what I could be doing if he had me somewhere else. This is kind of like Billy Graham or Tim Keller finishing their pastoral labors on an Aleutian island. That, that's kind of what's going on here with John. With the contrast to the middle of his life, his old age, his dawning, or um, not dawning, that's the beginning of the day. What's the end? The end of his days. The sun's going down. Until this moment. Until he looked up and Jesus unveils a different vision of life. And gives John this moment to see him with new eyes that he can pass on to us. And I think it's absolutely fascinating that John, as I've already said, who literally leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, who smelled his breath, who held his hands, who slept next to him on the boat, gets this crazy vision of Jesus. I mean, imagine what Jesus could have done, right? It could have been like the memory feature on your, on your phone or your computer that pulls up your photo album and kind of reminds you of things that happened a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. And you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember when my kids were three. And you smile. Like, Jesus could have done that for John. Instead, he gives him this vision. This kind of lucid, fever dream vision that's kind of like memories tumbling around in a dryer. I mean, that's that's what John gets instead of the picture book. Jesus loved John. And Jesus knew that John needed to see him with new eyes. And he needed to see himself with new eyes. He needed to see the church with new eyes. He needed to see the unseen with faith. Remember our call to worship? Seeing the unseen with faith. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Seeing the unseen with faith. We are not alone. Our life is not without purpose. The Holy Spirit is building us into a dwelling place. Our life of faith in a broken world, struggling, inconsistent, and meager as it might be, is filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of His body, the church. Where's your Patmos? Where is your forgotten island? Where do you feel most alone, most useless, most without purpose? Where do you feel bored? It's hard to be honest with that question, isn't it? I mean, especially around church people. Maybe that's an easier question on Wednesday. What do you demand from Jesus to feel seen and included? What are you angry at Jesus about that he hasn't given you, and so you feel seen and not included in his work in the world? Where are you anxious or numb or sad because you don't feel seen and included in God's work in the world? You know, you might have to look at some of those negative emotions a little bit more to start getting at that question. 
and you might have to answer the question several different times. You might have to tell yourself about that, what's underneath that emotion, and then ask yourself, well, tell me a little bit more about that. Tell me a little bit more about that anxiety. Tell me a little bit more about that sadness. And maybe you'll start to be honest with yourself, and maybe you'll be honest with somebody else, about what you're demanding from Jesus to feel seen and included in his work in this world. Well, John sees us as partners with him. Did you see that at the beginning? Look again at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. You see, John looks at you as he writes this letter, and he sees that we stand in the same spiritual landscape. We all struggle to believe that God is with us and that God is using us for his glory. I, John, your brother and partner in the gospel. That is to say, if you can believe this, that you are as much a part of Jesus' story in this world as John who wrote the gospel is. He sees you as a brother and a sister and a partner in the gospel. We are partners with him in God's mission in the world. We stand in a common place spiritually. Though it looks like an island, it might feel like you are alone. It might feel like I can't see my life's purpose. None of those things are true. And John gives us three words that describe every follower of Jesus. Three words that describe every follower of Jesus. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. Brothers and sisters, partners in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If you are trying to understand your life, if you're trying to see it differently, hold on to these three words. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. Tribulation. The life of faith is one of opposition. It is not easy to believe the gospel. It is not easy to follow Jesus. The world, the flesh, the devil all oppose you believing that Jesus loves you. Our sinful hearts, the spiritual forces of evil, systems of injustice and lies that shape the world, all three of these things stand in opposition to a life of faith. And John calls it tribulation. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. You see, the Christian life is not supposed to feel comfortable or safe or easy. Partners in the tribulation. That's the negative side. What's the positive side? Partners in the kingdom. God is at work in his people. God is at work in you. The one who defeated death, who lives forevermore, who holds the keys of death in Hades and the seven stars in his right hand. 
the one who is sovereignly ruling and tending every moment, circumstance, and wrinkle of life for all his people in every nook and cranny of the globe, who has the hairs on your head numbered, easier every year. This God is the one under whose, under whose care you and I live. We are partners in what Jesus is doing in the world because he rules all things. Tribulation and kingdom are both descriptors of every follower of Jesus' life, and John's as well. And this requires what? Patient endurance. Patient endurance. Delayed gratification. How often are you in conversation with somebody and you can't remember a detail or there's some curiosity that you can't call up? What do you do? Instant answer. You Google it. Right? You pull out your phone and you Google the answer and you continue on with your conversation. You don't have to wait for an answer. The treasure troves of the world's libraries are at your fingertip. You don't have to wait. You have to wait to see how the Christian story turns out. Tribulation and kingdom, delayed gratification, patient endurance. You can't Google search the answer to God's kingdom and his work in the world. Oh, that we could. So is it really fair for me to say that, like, that we're partners with John? The one who walked with Jesus, who wrote part of the Bible? Like, am I overstating the case? Is this just like a preacher flourish? Brothers and sisters, partners in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus on account of his word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I mean, John was literally handpicked by the Lord literally by the hand, walked alongside him. He wasn't just in the front row of God's kingdom. He was on the stage of God's work in the world, wasn't he? And our life feels like we're still like maybe holding tickets outside the door. Like, I wish I could get in, right? We're not on, we'd love to be on the front row, much less on the stage. Sometimes we feel like we're outside the theater. John saw you as a partner in what God was doing. Jesus sees you as a partner, as family, as brothers and sisters in what he's doing in the world. What do we need to see this? What do we need to see that we stand with John where he stood in the spiritual landscape of God's work in the world? Well, we need to see what John saw, and that's what we're going to do, verses 12 and following. Let's see what John saw. Let's hear what John saw, because sometimes it's hard to see. I have a good friend. We lived in Portland for a couple years, uh, about a decade ago, and one of our, my good friends there made wine for a living. And good wine is lost on me. Like, I can, a, a glass of cheap wine and a glass of good wine, it's about the same on my non-sophisticated palate because sinus problems for decades, I can't, I, it's hard for me to taste the difference, right, between a cheap glass and an expensive glass. But Ben, my buddy Ben, who made some of the best Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley. Tasting wine with him was a different experience. Like, he could take a sip of wine, and he knew the weather patterns from 10 years ago that made that flavor. He could identify, like, which side of the valley that grew on. He knew the taste of the terroir. That's a fancy French word for earth, I think. Um, he knew the grapes, the barrels. 
he could taste a glass of wine, and the flavors, it was kind of like falling into Dr. Strange, um, multitude, oh, I was, like, what's the name of that movie? I already quoted it. I can't remember. Um, the multiverse of madness, that's what it's like, but it was the multiverse of flavors, right? It was amazing. And we actually did a blind taste test with Ben because we thought he was making this up. But, like, it was for real. So the great thing about having a glass of wine with Ben is that you started to taste it with him. It's like he was opening up the eyes of your taste buds, and it was amazing. Like, he drew you into it. And that's what the vision of Jesus does for us. It gives us new spiritual sight to see ourselves and to see the world differently. And you might read it and think, some of this stuff is crazy. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. It's like, take the logical, linear kind of reformed theology mindset and put it on the shelf. It's important. We like it. But like, think creatively and imaginatively. What do these images do to your heart and your mind to help you see things that you wouldn't otherwise see? John literally saw this Jesus. His words give us the opportunity by the Holy Spirit to see with him. So verse 12, he turns and he sees the voice. What is it that John saw? John saw his friend. He saw Jesus. But it's not a Jesus he'd ever seen before. He sees one that was like the Son of Man, who was luminescent with light, who walked amongst the seven golden lampstands. And this is, I kind of see this like a, a 70s kind of memory montage moment in a movie, right? Like he turns around and it, the light goes golden, there's seven stands, and then there's Jesus. This Old Testament Daniel vision of the Son of Man, a priest king with a robe and a golden sash, and this white hair that's not the white hair of old age. It's like hair that is like snow. It's reflecti- refracting the light. And his eyes are like fire, and his face is like the sun in its strength. And there's a sword coming out of his mouth, and his voice, it's like the roar of many waters. Let me, let, actually, you know what, let's just, let's read it again. Hear it. And, and see if you can see something different about Jesus. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is verse 12. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. Have you ever stood underneath a waterfall? His voice like the roar of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's not the humble Galilean carpenter It's not the torn flesh hanging on the cross. This is the Ancient of Days. This is Jesus in His divine glory, yet still fully human. 
And did you catch how Jesus sees you in this vision? Jesus is amongst lamps that are lit with supernatural light that comes from him. Jesus' face shines like the sun, but the lamps are shining bright too. And who are those lamps? Well, that's us. That's you. You are a lamp, a new creation temple shining with the glory of the resurrected Lord. You see, you don't just get to see Jesus in this vision. We get to see ourselves. We get to see ourselves and what God is doing in and through us. And Jesus walks amongst his people, tending their light with his divine light and life. He sees you. And he's at work in and through you. He is with us. It's hard to see, isn't it? Not with these words. When John sees his friend like he's never seen him before, what does he do? Look at verse 17. When I saw Jesus, I fell down at his feet as though dead. He's blown away. He's humbled. He is in awe. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus do when his friend falls down on his face? Fear not. He puts his hand on his shoulder and he tells him, do not be afraid. As you stand on this island, as you worry about the church, as you wonder what your life was about or what it was all for, do not be afraid, John. Imagine what it was for John to look up into those flaming eyes of the vision of Jesus. The face shining like the sun, yet he was invited to look up, to see it, and to feel the weight of Jesus' hand on his shoulders. And Jesus, his friend, says to John, and he says to us, do not be afraid, fear not. And it's not, don't be afraid, it's a warm invitation. Don't be afraid. I've conquered death, I've conquered hell, your sin has been removed. Do not be afraid. You know, as I, th- as I hear those words, I think that this might be the besetting sin that many of us struggle with. Like there's lots of ethical cr- issues that Christians get wrapped about. But really, the thing that like, warps so much of our life, fear and suspicion. Fear and suspicion. Fear and suspicion quench the Holy Spirit. Their moral responses to the world, not good ones. Fear not. I've conquered sin. Fear not. I've been raised from the grave. Fear not. This vision is meant to fire your heart with hope. You are not alone. Your life has purpose. John needed to see this. We need to see this. We need to hear this so that we can see this. And I, 
I don't want you to miss the compassion of this moment. The resurrected Jesus lays his hand on his friend's shoulder and tells him not to be afraid. Not because his circumstance is going to change, but because he's not alone and he is seen. And God is unveiling himself to John. You are not alone. Your life is not useless. Even on Patmos, even on an island, Jesus walks among his people. He sends spiritual help, angels, to guard our steps. He speaks words of life. He reaches down through his means of grace, one of which we're about to celebrate at this table. And he puts his hand on our shoulder and he says, do not be afraid. I've got this. I've got it. I've got you. Have you ever gazed into the eyes of a trusted friend or a lover, a spouse, a child, when you expect that you might be forgotten by them or maybe that they're going to be upset because of something that you've done or not done? And instead of anger or dismissal, you see the fidelity of their affection in the way that they look back at you. Have you ever experienced that? That's what Jesus is doing for us in this moment. Hand on your shoulder, asking you to look up at him, reminding us that we should not be afraid because he is faithful. The light of Jesus' eyes is more eternally real than the light of the sun under which we walk. The weight of Jesus' hand is more unrelenting in its pull of love than the gravity under which we walk. Brothers and sisters, we are partners in the tribulation, in the kingdom, on account of God's word and the testimony of Jesus. You are being built into a dwelling place of the God's spirit. You are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions as you walk by faith in loving and serving one another in the world. See yourselves as Jesus sees you. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the unrelenting glory and welcome of your work that conquered sin and death. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.